When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is free speech the indispensable requirement and bedrock of all of our other rights? Today I will be joined by Nadine Strawson, the former president of the ACLU and an author on several books on speech, most recently Hate and How we should resist it with free speech, not censorship. Professor Strawson teaches at New York Law School and sits on the Council of Foreign Relations. Welcome. I want to welcome you to the podcast on free speech, especially in the university. So today I have Nadine Strawson. I'm really excited you're here today. You've been involved in free speech debates for such a long time longtime president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the first woman to be the president, and you've been active in free speech uh, conversations for such a long time. And I'm especially excited that you found time to talk to me today with your new book that has just appeared in the Oxford University Inalienable Rights series called Hate and Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. If I can start you out by saying... What motivated you or prompted you to write yet another book, an important book on defending free speech as you frame it against hate and sort of outline and explain its opposition to us? Thank you so much for including me in your really exciting podcast series, Oli. I'm delighted to be here. Now, the reason I wrote the book was that a couple of years ago, we started to see a resurgence of campus activism on behalf of human rights, social justice, racial justice, a whole host of causes precipitated probably by the horrible episodes of police violence and shooting of unarmed black men, including in Ferguson, Missouri. I have been a lifelong activist on behalf of all of those causes, and in particular, when I was a student many generations ago, uh, seriously, in the 60s and 70s, I was very active on behalf of civil rights and women's rights and some of those very same causes. And in the in-between decades, we had seen a falling off of student activism. So it was wonderful to see this renewed engagement. However, what started to become clear quite soon was that too many student social justice activists somehow saw free speech as their enemy rather than as what I have always believed and observed it to be the most essential ally for furthering their causes. 
And yet, public opinion polls shows that that message is not accepted. As an educator and as an advocate, I thought, this is a, an educational opportunity for me. Let me see if I can make the case more persuasively than it's been made before. Interesting. Thank you for getting us right into the topic. So I, I think you're absolutely right that campus movements, that especially Black Lives Matter and how it has manifested itself on campus and students actually arguing for equality, arguing for racial justice, and saying that the institutions in which they're enrolled don't quite work right now. Absolutely, I share that sentiment. As you said, there has been a kind of tension or conflict. Can you say a little bit more why you think that students um, are getting this wrong? And is it really a fundamental misunderstanding that free speech is on their side and the people who are coming who have really extremely different views are really people they should defend and protect? First of all, I always want to frame it positively because I really do think that this generation of student activists who public opinion polls show are just uh, much more sympathetic to people who are different from them, much more concerned about diversity and inclusion and equality and dignity. That is wonderful. So the last thing that I, as a human rights activist, want to come across as is um, critical of these students. To the contrary, I'm critical explicitly of myself and people in my generation who have failed to sufficiently explain we have not done our job as educators and as activists in making the case that uh, robust freedom of speech is really essential. So that's what I'm trying. I really don't want to be critical of them. And I've and I say this not just in the abstractly. I'm constantly on the campus lecture circuit. I speak uh, every kind of campus from community colleges to Ivy League universities all over the country in the heartland as well as on the coast. And I have enormous respect for these students. So the point is that let's start with that concept, hate. It is an emotion, right? By definition, it's impossible to define it in any objective way. When I look at the definitions that I've looked at, every definition of prohibited hate speech that has either been adopted or proposed by countries all over the world, by campuses in the United States who used to have hate speech codes and to some extent still do, despite the First Amendment problems, uh, they are all inevitably overly vague. They depend on concepts such as demeaning and disparaging and degrading or inciting or infuriating or makes me uncomfortable or I feel it feels unwelcome. And the problem with that kind of subjective concept is that it invests uncontrollable discretion on the part of whoever is enforcing it. Of course, hate, as you're saying, has a definitional problem. And the list of adjectives you just gave, it could be demeaning, it could be offensive, it could also be inciting. And the laws, of course, always recognize some need to regulate speech in certain contexts. May I say a word about that? Because that's so poorly understood. And, And that, I think, is also part of the problem that I think I and others have not sufficiently explained what the law is. And I must admit, as a result of writing this book and trying to understand it and articulate it more clearly myself, 
I gained new insights. And First Amendment lawyers who have read my book said the same thing. They did not sufficiently appreciate the extent to which our current law already allows hateful speech to be punished and suppressed in certain contexts. And that's very important because our law has not defined a speech that contains a certain hateful content and said, well, if it's disparaging or demeaning or whatever adjective we want to use, uh, we are therefore going to suppress it. However, if but only if, in a particular context, this hateful speech or speech with any other message uh, directly causes specific, imminent, serious harm, such as intentional incitement to imminent violence, which is likely to occur, which you alluded to, then it can and must be punished. So our law really does draw an appropriate line. If we were to assume, and I agree with you, that First Amendment lawyers and Law school faculty, you're one of them, would take that upon themselves to educate the public better, and they would understand this is the only exception the law makes for imminent and direct threats to individuals. Therefore, we would be home free and kind of saying everything else is sort of just that's upsetting or it's offensive or it's hateful. My question to you is in the university... I disagree with that, so you're going to give me a chance. Good, good, good. So respond to this. So that's only part of the argument because I think one absolutely has to be concerned with other values that are equally fundamental, namely equality, uh, psychic well-being, societal harmony. If I may put in a personal plea here, I'll tell your audience something that you well know, which is I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. My father was born in Berlin in 1922 as what under the Nuremberg Laws was called a Jew of the second degree, a half-Jew. He was also politically active as a teenager in anti-Hitler movements. The combination of those factors landed him in the Buchenwald forced labor camp. He was young and strong enough that they didn't slate him for extermination, at least not right away. So I'm the daughter of somebody who was enslaved and who almost died because of the horrific conditions at that camp. Moreover, was scheduled to be sterilized the day after he happened to be liberated by the American military. So if I can uh, paraphrase a friend of mine, much as I love free speech, I loathe the Nazis even more than I love free speech, right? And if I thought that censorship would be an effective way to prevent genocide or even psychic harm, I would be in favor of it. But it's not effective. Right. Thank you, first of all. I mean, that's very powerful and important, actually, what motivates you, what drives you, and sort of to come to this point to say that censorship is not effective. We can, since you brought up the example of the horrific crimes of the Nazi and the Holocaust, which there's a way to look at it to say Americans generally believe to restrict speech will lead to, and I paraphrase a lot of people who've commented on other things that we've written, restricting speech leads to totalitarianism, if not fascism. Europeans tend to think allowing all speech leads to totalitarianism, if not fascism. Two things that cannot really be proven, they're counterfactuals, but there's a way in which you're saying these kind of hateful ideas that actually target entire groups for enslavement, extermination, 
that they could be countered by free speech, by refuting them as arguments. And I think we now have enough of a record of hate speech laws, not only in the Weimar Republic. I mean, people are surprised to learn that Hitler rose to power during an era where Germany not only had on its books strict laws criminalizing hate speech, very similar to the current laws that Germany and and many other countries enforce, but they also enforced those laws, including against the Nazis. And the leading Jewish organization in Germany at the time said most of the prosecutions were very well handled. But the Nazis used it as propaganda platforms that increased attention and even increased sympathy for their odious messages, much the way hate mongers in this country do. And that's why you have anti-hate organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I admire enormously, pleading with students and others that the the most effective reaction to an alt-right white supremacist coming to your campus is to ignore them as much as you can. Don't give them the airtime okay. that they are seeking. I want to go back to, for one moment to the Weimar example mm. because it's it's you know it's a historical example. It's important. But there is also the fact that Hitler at some point was prohibited from making any political speeches for about four years, and then that ban was lifted again. So the Weimar Republic actually restored his speech rights. And there are people who think that what would have been the loss to humanity if Hitler would not have been given back his speech rights because he was prohibited from political speech and electioneering or you know propaganda for a while, and then that was restored in the name of free speech. So it's not totally clear, I think, that the Weimar Republic repressed speech entirely, which is the precursor to Nazism, and that led to it. Yeah, I would never make the claim that repressing speech is necessarily a precursor to Nazism. So let yeah. me, my points are uh, more subtle, but still important. Number one, that Uh, suppressing speech, giving the government power to suppress speech is going to result in not only suppressing white supremacist speech, it's going to result in suppressing Black Lives Matter activist speech. In this country, leaders of the civil rights movement and every other advocate for social reform and social justice has been subject to censorship because their speech was seen by the majority, which after all wields the power as being threatening, dangerous, subversive, hurtful, right. offensive, you and, name it. And, and and today, there are state legislatures and others are advocating that Black Lives Matter be considered a hate group and that their speech be suppressed as hate speech. Yeah, you're right. And our Justice Department has directives to investigate them as domestic terrorists. So this is actually where the government is acting in a direction that presumably we and I would agree is really an infringement on people's right for political dissent. And for a long time, as we know, the Supreme Court has also very effectively suppressed communist speech in this country, and that was lifted. To go to the example you just brought up of students and universities, so they probably are, and I share this view, they're saying, what is the benefit of inviting, as the example you gave, a white supremacist into the university setting where the point is twofold. It's teaching and research and the advancement of knowledge. And it's this particular environment where we make decisions on many occasions of who gets invited in. People who have proven expertise, who have a particular experience that benefits this kind of advancement. Does bringing a white supremacist to a university campus really aid in the kind of advancement of knowledge and educating students who are there to learn? 
That's a very important question, but I would also like to complete my answer to your prior two questions, if I may. (laughs) Because one point that I'm really dying to make is that suppressing hateful speech is not effective. Okay? So most of the people who advocate going beyond the current United States law and saying the mere fact that it's a hateful idea that we hate should be enough to justify censoring it. And and because it causes harm, and I do not at all deny that it certainly can cause enormous harm to individuals and societies. But the analysis has to go beyond that. Will censoring it actually be effective in reducing the harm, or will it have unintended negative consequences? And I want to answer your question, so maybe you'll give me the opportunity to come back to this, Uli, because so many human rights activists in Germany and other countries that have these laws have been, after decades of experience, saying, you know what, they're ineffective at best and they're counterproductive at worst. Maybe the most, because we know about the huge outbreaks of anti-Semitic, anti-Roman, anti-immigrant, and so forth, violence in European countries, including Germany, France, despite the strong enforcement of anti-hate speech laws. Now I'll come back to your excellent question. I apologize for moving too quickly, so let's stay with this. I think it's an important point to say that I wouldn't necessarily call it sort of punishing, but regulating speech in some ways can go in the wrong direction, and giving the state power to regulate speech the state then has the right to use it in any direction and suppress speech that the state doesn't agree with. That is the entire principle. There are other ways in which speech is regulated in this country. Libel, et cetera, certain things you cannot say on the floors of Congress, et cetera. Um, Do you have the same issue with those kinds of areas where the law moves into speech and where certain things are restricted? So we couldn't be here on the show and discuss certain products in certain ways, or someone could actually say we have a problem with that kind of speech. And the interesting thing is that I learned from reading my book is that there really is a very overarching pattern on American free speech law. Now, I don't want to exaggerate that because we have basically a common law system where the law is not made neatly and cleanly and in broad strokes the way it is in a country where they just write a code, right? Ours is one case here and another case there, many years apart on different topics. Um, So there are some inconsistencies, but the broad overarching pattern that we've been moving closer and closer to is that to suppress speech, you have to show some particular tangible harm that the speech causes, and there's no other way of preventing that harm other than suppressing the speech. So you mentioned libel, for example. To win a libel case, you have to show, A, that the speaker intended to make a false statement to harm your reputation, that it actually harms your reputation and causes demonstrable economic injury as well. I think the other illusions you were talking to was violating intellectual property rights. Really, the only exception we have where speech may still be punished merely because its idea or message is deemed objectionable is the so-called obscenity exception to the First Amendment, which is extremely controversial and I think is long overdue to be overturned. Right. So should we return to the example of campus? So in some ways, there's a certain kind of part, as you're saying, the students who haven't really necessarily fully appreciated the way free speech is on their side in a way, how it gives them the right to protest, to object, and that is actually an empowering thing. I think there are also people who are saying, 
We've watched this kind of expansion of robust speech rights, as you say, that has helped minorities especially to achieve equality. And then there are students who are saying it hasn't done nearly enough, and it seems to protect people who want to roll all this back. So they hear a lot of people defending vigorously the rights of white supremacists and racists on campus, and they don't hear as vigorously sort of claims for the 14th Amendment or for equality. So there's a huge amount of enthusiasm in the culture about defending speech rights that the students see they're defending the status quo, which is unequal, and they're not really actually defending the advancement of our country's commitment to the ideals of equality. And it may well be that there are some people who are making that incomplete argument, and that is not me and it's not my book, which is, let me, if I may repeat the title of the book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. So I really am acknowledging the very troubling problem of ongoing hatred, discrimination, stereotyping. And I am saying we should resist it. We have an obligation as a society and individuals. And I am exhorting people to use what I believe is the time-tested, more effective manner for resisting discrimination, which is more speech and then other non-sensorial measures such as anti-discrimination laws, which are strongly enforced, laws against so-called hate crimes. And I completely support those laws. And if I may, uh, may I explain what that is? Because the term hate speech and hate crime are very often used interchangeably, and they're completely distinct. Hate speech throughout my book, I, along with many other who stu- uh, experts if I may say, uh, put that term in quotation marks to signify that it is not a legally recognized concept, precisely because, as I said earlier, the Supreme Court has never defined a category of speech based on its hateful content or intent and said it's excluded from First Amendment protection. However, the concept of a hate crime has been legally recognized and okayed by the Supreme Court. Sometimes it's called a bias crime. You take something that is already crime, such as assault or vandalism, and you say, you know, it causes even more harm to the individual victim and to society if the reason the victim was singled out is because of discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender, identity, and so forth. Uh, so, um, And other countries are not enforcing laws against actual discrimination and hate crime and not having the robust counterspeech by government officials and citizens. If I may, this links back to the Nazi theme, uh, which is the main problem there was the violence, literally murder, that the Nazis got away with because of the inability or unwillingness of government to prevent them from literally beating up and even killing their political opponents as well as members of minority groups. It would have been as if during the civil rights movement here, there had been no effort to punish the assassins of Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and other civil rights leaders and and activists. We're touching on a kind of fundamental debate in our culture right now that Black Lives Matter and also from the civil rights movement, we do know that there were verdicts not rendered, that there were murders of civil rights activists, of black children and people who were never sentenced. And there was a kind of systematic bias in the legal system, according to these activists who are now really saying 
We and have according a to the ACLU. Yeah. I mean, so, the ACLU has long criticized the discrimination in the criminal justice so, system. So, so that's the kind of speech you're saying. This is the way in which you fight against hate. And sort of part of the ACLU's, for example, the engagement to sort of fight for due process for equality under the law. So I think that's very important. I, yeah. It is very important, but I think that uh, there's an, another complementary point that I want to keep insisting on, which is that the alternative of suppression is less effective and maybe even counterproductive. And it flows from the very critique of the Black Lives Matter activists, which is a message, by the way, that the ACLU has been championing from the beginning and certainly throughout my entire activism with it. We coined the term driving while black, I believe, in the 1980s and have been lobbying for, again, so that's part of the reason why I'm so thrilled that these messages that we've been pounding for so many years are now catching on with very important segments of the community. So, so may I say something? Sure. Uh, so the fact that we have endemic structural systemic racism, racial discrimination in our criminal justice system, in our civil justice system, we have implicit or unconscious bias on the part of all of us as individuals. How can we escape it living in this society? Therefore, the last thing we should do is hand over to those power structures this inherently discretionary power to decide whose speech is going to be protected and whose is going to be punished. That power is not going to be used in a way that's friendly overall to voices who are challenging police abuse and other injustices. I I think in the university, the students are asking this question in a slightly sort of more specific way. They're saying the university actually regulates speech quite a lot, apart from speech codes, which are so complicated, because it says certain things are worthy of discussion and certain things are a way of phrasing it and certain topics will be discussed and any teacher in any classroom will say certain things are not relevant right now and you cannot talk about this idea. That would not fly under First Amendment, of course, and also certain things you'll have to say because you have to go through examination so you're compelled to speak also not a First Amendment principle. So it's kind of a little bit apart from that and the university students are saying in this particular context which functions sometimes like a public, limited public institution like a library or like the halls of Congress, there are certain rules of engagement. Some of those rules are acceptable, as you note in your book. There's a real difference between citing a racial epithet for teaching versus using one against a member of the community. The latter one will probably be, have repercussions and someone will probably be you know, sent uh, reprimanded or in some way penalized. or And the first one we're using as an illustrative example should probably be part of academic discussion. But the students are saying in this context where speech is by definition regulated, some ideas merit debate and other ideas are never discussed. We don't discuss the law of gravity anymore. Things are settled. We don't discuss whether women should be in physics classrooms. Those are settled. And then the students are saying, and suddenly... You, as a university, are bringing back people who are opening old debates, who are saying, are some races inferior in intelligence? Are women qualified to participate? Things that they feel are so absurd that 
why do those ideas enjoy this kind of special status that they're politically incendiary and we must protect them, otherwise we risk the consequences that you outlined? Well, no idea is entitled to special status. I mean, the, I'll give a name to a principle that I've alluded to. Lawyers call it the viewpoint neutrality principle, which the Supreme Court uh, unanimously has called the bedrock of our First Amendment law, that government, including a public university, may never suppress or regulate or punish speech, treat it differently in any other way because of its viewpoint. It can be neither preferred if it's got a certain viewpoint nor disfavored if it has a certain viewpoint. Now, you're talking about classrooms and pedagogical expression. That's a completely different sphere from the more public areas of the university where it functions, let's say, you know, the sidewalk or the, the, the green and, you know, different parts of the university that are open to all speakers, perhaps on a first-come, first-served neutral basis, the way a, uh, a sidewalk or a public park would be outside the university right. context. So you're absolutely right that we are making decisions as professors, as administrators, as students for or against particular viewpoints every day. That's our professional responsibility, specifically in the teaching and research aspects of the university. But thanks to the free speech movement at Berkeley in the mid-1960s, it has become accepted that universities also have a responsibility to serve as a general public forum where students and faculty members and other members of the community, including the larger community, would have the same free speech rights that they would have in Central Park. So do you think there is really no distinction between the sidewalk of the campus of a public university and the plaza in the public university? If there were no real distinction from the law perspective, let's say there isn't, why do people want to speak on the plaza? Isn't there a reason they want to go into the university space? They want to be legitimized by the university. They want to get that prestige. They want to be in the middle of a square that is a university, not just the town square next door. Well, if it's just a matter of some, you know, Hyde Park, anybody can go there, uh, then there shouldn't be any prestige attached to it other than that you have the time and you found the space to do it. And there are many things that universities can do, which municipalities often do, which is to put up big signs disclaimers that we do not endorse the message of anybody who is speaking here. We simply are abiding by neutral First Amendment principles. And there, there are, though, certain forums in universities where I agree there is a selectivity and therefore some imprimatur. I think the most extreme example, the most dramatic example, would be selecting a commencement speaker. By definition, there's only one person. Of course, the viewpoint should be taken into account. And even more so, to a lesser extent, student groups, even if they are allowed to uh, make their own decisions about whom to invite, they still have a limited number of resources available, and they should be very careful about how they exercise that selection. That's a big concern. And the examples we've seen where really there's been lots of controversy is very prominent speakers who have a lot of social media cachet, who come, whose statements, some students are worth of debate and other students are feel are exclusively provocative, incendiary, and serve no purpose whatsoever aside from provoking. And as you said, student groups invite them. 
And as we've seen at the University of California or at Berkeley or the University of Florida in Gainesville, they cost over half a million dollars to stage. These are resources that actually the students are entitled to and the university has a financial responsibility to the state to spend them on education and research. How should one think about those? Not really adjudicate, but just think about what does it mean for someone to use the university really to advance an agenda that really has is a hard to explain sort of this is a valuable viewpoint to our society. I don't think it, anybody would well, I, I be, have to be careful. We got a, a million different infinite number of different viewpoints. I think many people invite those provocateurs uh, specifically hoping to create some kind of backlash and that's why the provocateurs like to come to campus. They know that their message is going to be overwhelmingly detested. I don't think their message gets any additional traction in those campus communities at all. But it fires up their base, which is why you have organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center saying to liberals on campus, progressives on campus, don't allow yourselves to fall into their trap. You know what? Some of those very same people have spoken on campuses where there was no attempt to censor them. There was no counter demonstration that was visible. And it doesn't even make it into the news media. Now, if I were a faculty advisor to those students, I would advise them not. And in fact, let me not quote myself. I'm going to quote the Southern Poverty Law Center, which really does specialize in reducing the impact of hate groups and they issued a, a guidance to campuses in right before the beginning of this current academic year because of troubling information that alt-right white supremacists were going to be trying to recruit on college campuses and they gave a lot of strategies that students progressive students students who don't the overwhelming majority don't share those messages I suspect even the students who invite those speakers don't share those viewpoints and they said one thing you should do is try to persuade that group, even if it has the prerogative to do so, Persuade, try to persuade it not to bring so that So let speaker. me ask you two questions. So the first one is, I actually thought you would have maybe said, when someone comes who has a viewpoint you strongly disagree with, mm-hmm. even if it's vile or objectionable, you should come out and demonstrate, exercise your free speech rights. I'm a little cautious about a message that has been rendered by many university presidents, and I completely sympathize with them, to say, at that day, stay away. Don't give them more publicity. Mm. They become martyrs of the Mm. First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But the students are saying, this is my university. Mm -hmm. To be encouraged to stay away Mm. exactly plays into the hand of these people. Not necessarily. So it is a strategic judgment, right? And we should have debates about what is the most effective strategy for defusing their message. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, I really respect its long experience. And they say it may be morally satisfying to express that counter speech in a face-to-face, vigorous confrontation that's going to generate a lot of news, but it's going to be very expensive and might result in violence. What you should do instead is have your own affirmative event elsewhere on campus that is affirmatively celebrating the values that you affirmatively champion. And don't be reactive to them. That simply amplifies their voice. So we may disagree about strategy, but I think we all agree that the underlying principle is what can we do to most clearly underscore the values and promote the values that we as a university do share? As a hypothetical, what if 
someone were invited, and then the university rescinded the invitation or said we don't have the resources to provide security, et cetera, et cetera. And would you think that is a direct violation of the First Amendment? And if, and if it's not a legal violation, is it a problem? And some people would say, what is the loss to society? If George Wallace, who did not get to speak at Yale University in the 60s, he didn't speak. Yale is still standing. Civilization continued. But it was a clear, you know, abridgment of his free speech right So if one of the white supremacists who wants to come to campus and say that black students shouldn't be here or Muslim students shouldn't be here or undocumented students shouldn't be here or gay and lesbian students shouldn't be here, what is lost if that person actually does not get to speak? If it doesn't violate a rule, if it's a private university, for instance, and no judge will take it up and say you are now compromised our bedrock principles of free speech, do you think there's a loss to the social fabric to the university and these students have been deprived of an idea. So the loss to society and to the students and the university is the chipping away of a neutral principle that more often than not comes to the advantage of those who have been and continue to be relatively marginalized and disempowered. Let me give you a concrete example. Uh, In the infamous or famous Skokie case from the late 1970s, when the ACLU came to the defense of a group of neo-Nazis who provocatively wanted to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town with not only many Jewish people, but many of them were Holocaust survivors, the principle that was argued for was, well, there's nothing special about, nothing's going to be lost if the Nazis don't march in Skokie. And in fact, we're going to preserve the Holocaust survivors from the psychic pain and fear that they would feel if they knew the Nazis were marching in their town. The ACLU's brief pointed out that those were exactly the same arguments that were made just a few years earlier in Cicero, Illinois, a town in the same state that was uh, contained many people who were deeply opposed to civil rights and to integration and who tried to stop Martin Luther King from demonstrating in their town. They said, why does he have to demonstrate here? What loss is there going to be? And we're going to be psychically harmed, and we feel he's a threat uh, to all that we hold dear as individuals and a society. So we always have to be willing to have the same principle enforced against ideas that we like. And the principle you're invoking says that it would be the unintended consequences would be negative for the minority group. I think people are saying 40 years later, after Charlottesville, they're saying... So the ACLU defended Skokie. The neo-Nazis marched in another suburb of Chicago. That was a great triumph for the free speech principles. And then students are saying, and what exactly was won for minority students on the university who are made to not just feel offended, because it's not the claim I think that's central, but our equal participation in this university is officially disputed by somebody bringing the speaker onto campus. So they're saying, where was the progress? What is the guarantee? It's, it, well, first of all, I, you know, we always have to keep our eye on not only the ongoing challenges, which I and my colleagues in the ACLU are working every day. I mean, the resources we spend advocating for racial justice and criminal justice and women's rights and immigrants' rights is infinitely 
infinitely more than what is expended in these highly publicized situations such as, as Charlottesville. And one has to, despite the ongoing challenges, one has to acknowledge the progress. Part of the reason why there is such welcome protest on campus about the ongoing racial injustice, which I've been protesting about my entire life, is that we do now have many more students of color, and even women were long barred from many campuses, are now becoming significant members of the campus community, including at the faculty and administrative level. So I say, and and how has that happened? It's happened because of vigorous exercise of free speech despite the absence of censorship. It's happened because of affirmative action. It's happened because of enforcement of anti-hate crime laws. It has happened because of strong counter-speech, condemnation of discrimination and discriminatory ideas by university presidents. You know, Uli, when the hate speech codes were first advocated in this country in the 1980s by uh, prominent minority law professors, uh, and I acknowledge them and thank them all in my book because... Right, Richard Delgado and Mary Matsuda, people and like Charles that, Lawrence, right? and Charles exactly. Lawrence, exactly. Right. And they really put on the public radar screen and the civil liberties and civil rights radar screen that you're not achieving meaningful equality of opportunity on campus if you just take down the barriers against entry, but then subject uh, the students to hateful expression that makes them feel completely marginalized and isolated. And I went back and read for the umpteenth time those brilliant articles, and what I had forgotten was the extent to which they complain about the absence of counter-speech. They say that the psychic harm and the associated physiological and free speech harms, very significant. But they say that the harm comes so much, not, not only from the individual speaker who is disparaging, but from the silence on the part of others in the university community. But this is actually a very important point that you're making. And I think for you to point out the history of the ACLU's commitment to equality and such political values is very important. And I think what you how you started out by saying that this current generation, I'm not sure if they just haven't been educated correctly. I think they're actually very well informed. They just don't completely trust that that other message is as vocal and as strong and robust. And I think part of what they're saying, when someone sort of so strongly defends the right of even hateful people to speak, which they have the right to do, then the other side, which is your book's point, has to be as strong and forceful. That it cannot be a kind of, we tolerate their right to speak, but then we kind of walk away and don't talk. So the students are saying, is there as much condemnation of the viewpoints that we they have a right to speak, but we don't value their viewpoints. And that balance is, I think, a little bit out of sync right now. Interestingly enough, the students themselves, with all due respect, don't say that. And BuzzFeed News p- reported a survey which, in, in the fall of 2017, which it described as the first comprehensive survey of hate speech on campuses since the 2016 election, when there was a lot of attention to increased, disturbingly increased episodes. First of all, the numbers, while uh, any one incident is too much, the numbers were still relatively small. We have 5,000 campuses in this country, and they reported incidents at 120 campuses. That's 120 too many, and I'm sure there were others that were unreported. But the really positive thing was the students overwhelmingly said 
that their university had responded in a satisfactory manner, including the president of the university issuing campus-wide emails. And by the way, that's another strategy that can be used as opposed to in-your-face physical confrontation, is to proactively send out messages of condemnation. That's what the University of Florida president famously did with respect to Richard Spencer. Ken Fox, right, really important point. Do you think in this current political climate, there's a kind of hesitation or skepticism on some students' part to say that leadership is provided, that there's more leadership. If the highest members of government actually equivocate and say they're not uniformly condemned. Very famously, Jimmy Carter, when asked about Skokie, said, I absolutely condemn these points of view, but I leave it to the court to decide whether they have a right to be expressed. This is not quite the case in our current climate, where there's some doubt introduced that actually this kind of hateful speech that really is an un-American, goes against the American value of equality, that there's a condemnation at the highest level and more leadership is provided. So do you think that's part of what's playing into this? I think realistically, there, Donald Trump is the only leader, to the best of my knowledge, who did not unequivocally condemn the Nazis and fascists in Charlottesville. Even top members of his administration Republicans, military leaders, business leaders, uniformly and strongly not only condemned the hateful speakers and violence in Charlottesville, but strongly condemned Trump for not having done so. Well, strongly confirmed. I mean, they stayed in the cabinet, so that's probably an open issue. But I think it does signal that there's a sense that people at the highest level of government, and as you know, as a lawyer, Judge Witter from Louisiana two weeks ago actually didn't want to come out to say whether she supports the unanimous Brown versus Board decision about equality in public institutions. So people think if people at this level of education, sophistication, at the height of their careers can reopen a discussion about equality, how do I trust my university administrator to actually not also harbor those views? I'm not saying that everybody agrees, but it challenges the idea of moral leadership when this is suddenly back in the air of public discussion? If somebody has those discriminatory ideas, I would rather know about it than not know about it because it's an opportunity not to hire them, not to give them more responsibility to monitor their conduct, to make sure they don't engage in discriminatory conduct, and to try to dissuade them. That's something I have great faith in, having read many inspiring examples of even people who were leaders of hateful groups who, through sustained intervention and conversation with other people, including people of the groups that they thought they hated, have really been brought to the other side. So I do believe, and this Martin Luther King said it so eloquently, that hate can't conquer hate. Only love can do that. And I would say coercion in the form of censorship or violence cannot conquer hate. Only education and persuasion and activism can do that. Right. And I think here that's exactly the point, education, and to counter these kinds of statements and to explain why we counter them. I think the students want to also know there's a real commitment. And as you said earlier, you listed 
a lot of initiatives over the last 50 years that have actually improved the higher education sector in a way. But in some ways, are these commitments real? Are they lasting? Are they having real impact in communities? One has to constantly struggle. I mean, you mentioned Brown versus Board of Education. We know that schools are now more segregated than they were decades ago. So Roger Baldwin, who was a social worker, who was the principal founder of the ACLU, said no fight for civil liberties ever stays won. Nobody knows that better than I do. And also that every fight has to be refought in every generation. And it's not only the fight about the understanding of free speech, it's also the fight about the understanding of equality. And the reason why I didn't say that earlier is because I did start by saying, thank goodness we have so much activism in support of equality goals by members of campus communities. We didn't have that for many prior decades. And surveys that have been done of incoming college students, the, an institution in California does a, a thorough survey of every incoming college student every year. And they have shown not only that we are now at record levels of incoming students who are committed to social justice activism, not only on campus but beyond, but that there are record-breaking numbers of minority students who are so committed. So they are not feeling disempowered, thank goodness. They are not feeling silenced by all of the expressions from Trump on down. It's having the opposite, galvanizing, invigorating impact on them. Well, I hope this is correct. As we will see, it'll play itself out. I think the one thing that absolutely we can all agree on, this next generation will be the generation that will determine the future of this country. So it's heartening to see that they're actually taking up this idea of free speech to counter the kind of advocacy of inequality that is really not an American value, I think. And uh, and they give me great hope and inspiration. And if I may say, Uli, I, I make the point in my book that especially those of us who defend freedom of speech, and of course those of us who, who advocate equality, but I would say anybody who advocates free speech for hateful speech has a special moral responsibility to raise our voices to condemn any expression of hatefulness, whether we personally are disparaged or not, is irrelevant because, as you say, it's inconsistent with liberty and justice, which is the core of the American ideal. But this is a nice call to action, especially for people who call themselves free speech absolutists, but then leave it at that point of the argument. You're saying there's a commitment then to actually defend the values that actually are supported by this. I'll mention again the title of your book, So Hate why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship. Out now from Oxford University Press. So congratulations, Mazel Tov, on the book, first of all. It's really wonderful. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank today, you for Nadine. having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.